This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dr. Dawn on Careers. Welcome to Dr. Dawn on Careers on SiriusXM channel 132. This is your host, Dr. Dawn Graham. And in my day job, I lead coaching for the executive MBAs at the Wharton School. I'm also a licensed psychologist, former corporate recruiter, and author of the book, Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and Seize Success. And we're excited to be bringing you all new content during the month of June. So mark your calendars for noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific every Thursday and tune in to channel 132 for the latest career tips, job search advice, and market updates. And of course, a big shout out to Dion Simpkins, our engineer, and Dana Cash, our producer, for making this new content possible as we creatively navigate our temporary environment while we're out of the studio. So let's dive in. I'm super excited this week to be speaking with Dr. Amy Cuddy. Dr. Cuddy is a social psychologist, best-selling author, award-winning Harvard lecturer, and expert on the behavioral science of power, presence, and prejudice. Dr. Cuddy's first book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges, is a New York Times bestseller and has been published in 35 languages. And she's currently writing two new books, the first one on public speaking and the second titled Bullies, Bystanders, and Braveheart. So we will be getting sneak peek into those books today as well. And these delve into the psychological causes and consequences of bullying among adults. And so let's go ahead and talk to Dr. Cuddy. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Amy. We're so excited to have you. So much for having me. I'm so excited to be speaking to humans. So it's great. <laughs> yeah. So so um, first off, I'm a very big fan of your work, and I reference several points from your research in my book Switchers. And I want to, I definitely want to cover that. But first, I want to start with something that we talk about a lot on this show, which is prepping for the interview, and of course, stifling the anxiety that comes with that. And we often recommend to people to use a power pose, which I know is one of the things that that you are most famous for. But for our listeners who maybe haven't heard this before, why, what is this technique, first of all, and then why is it so incredibly helpful? Well, I mean, the idea is that when we feel powerful, we expand our bodies. We literally take up more space. When we feel powerless, we do the opposite. You know, we contract, we kind of wrap ourselves up. We touch our faces and our necks. I mean, think about people um, maybe in a, in a race, uh, crossing the, the finish line in first place. They throw their arms up into the victory pose. In all sports, you see the same thing because they're feeling powerful. Now think of someone who is, let's use sports again, when they're not doing well and you watch them sitting on the bench, they're making themselves small when they're losing and feeling powerless. Animals do the same thing. This is, this is true across uh, cultures. So when we feel powerful, we expand. When we feel powerless, we contract. My question and, and sort of what led to this research was, was, could we reverse engineer it? So could you expand and will that make you feel more powerful even when you're not feeling particularly powerful? Before you go into a job interview, a lot of, or for a lot of us, we go into a kind of vigilant, anxious, fearful state that's you know, akin to the you know, fight, flee, or faint response that animals have when they're being chased by a predator, like a tiger. Now, that's adaptive if you are actually being chased by a tiger, right? but it's not adaptive if you're going into a job interview where you actually need to be coming across as brave and strong and, um, and be able to connect with people. So, what if you expand and take up more space before walking into that job interview? Because your inclination before walking into a job interview is going to be to make yourself smaller. And if you look up even job interview waiting room, if you do like a Google image search, you will see people in these contractive postures or like hunching over their phones. So 
what we find and what lots of others have found in different fields of psychology um, and, and related fields is that when people adopt a posture or even movement that, that takes up more space, like standing with your hands on your hips and your feet apart, for example, like Wonder Woman, it causes them to feel more powerful, more confident, more in charge. And when you feel more powerful, your psychological approach system is activated, which means you approach these challenging situations like job interviews, not as if they're threatening, but as if they're an opportunity, right? And you see other people, not as potential threats, but as potential allies. So it completely changes our orientation toward challenging situations and toward the people who are in these challenging situations. Yeah, and I would say this absolutely works. I do this, I, I do some type of power pose, whether I'm, I'm gonna be presenting or before the radio show, Dana and Dion know for sure that I'm in there making all sorts of um, you know different movements. And it, it not only makes me feel much more relaxed, but it definitely gives me confidence and energy that I need to come across uh, on air. So I, I think this is something that's really simple that anyone can do in any place. And it doesn't matter if it's a job interview or, or you're going to be doing a presentation. It's like this, this idea of, as your, the title of your book is, this idea of being present for just a moment and really getting your body to, or your mind to follow your body. In the same way, if you smile, you know, you, you kind of automatically feel a little bit happier. And I think this is something that, that I stress with our listeners because it's very simple to do. So, so maybe we can back up to a little bit and talk about, I know your research, you talk about different types of power, social power versus personal power. Can you define, you know, what yeah, are a bit more and how they play a role in our careers and, and the job interview and the job search process? Yes, I think that's really important. So social power is zero-sum power. It's power over others or power over uh, resources that others need. It is really one person controlling other people. And it's zero-sum, right? So, so it, the more one person has of social power, the less another person has. Personal power is infinite. It's non-zero-sum. Personal power is not control over others. It's control over the self. So it's your ability to you know, summon your, your best, strongest self and bring that person forward when you most need to. So it's more akin to um, the, the idea of agency or self-efficacy. So it's, you know, can we do what we want to do? Um, and, and, and again, that is not neglecting, you know, I'm not neglecting that systemic uh, power differentials that are unfair are not affecting us. They absolutely are. But, but personal power is a different construct, right? So that's what personal power is. It's, um, it, it is a psychological state uh, in which we are attuned to and able to, you know, really bring forth our best selves. So how can people kind of work on their, their personal power, Amy? Because I know in certain situations, and it could be who's in the room with you. I mean, maybe there's certain rooms where we do feel like we have that confidence and, and that ability to bring our best selves. And then when we're with other people, we kind of just shrink away. Or when we're in a situation where we feel like we're being judged, like an interview or speaking on stage, how can people kind of get more insight into this about themselves and then start to make incremental changes so that they can bring them best their best selves to wherever they're going to be performing or speaking? Well, I think the, fir the first thing is to, uh, to, to recognize that everyone varies in how powerful they feel from one situation to another. So, so even people with enormous social power also have times when they feel personally powerless. And we are not effective when we feel personally powerless, even if we have a lot of social power. Um, so, I mean, I think first, to, just to recognize you're not alone. Um, the, the second is to really understand who your best self is. So you, you mentioned, you know, moments when we might feel personally powerful and we're in a setting where we, you know, we're with people who we feel kind of 
I, I don't remember the word you use, but like sort of, we, we feel safe around. Think about those moments. So if, if you think back on, on the best moments of your life over the last couple of years, what was happening in those moments? You know, who were you with? Um, you probably felt connected, you felt seen, you felt that you were seeing the people you were with, you were, you were able to, to show them your best self. That's the person that you need to be able to bring forth in situations when you're with people who you may not feel as comfortable with. So it's kind of, it's a little bit ironic that, that the person that you are when you're already in a safe situation, you don't necessarily need to be, you know, but, but but when you're in an, a situation that feels unsafe, it's very hard to bring that person forward. Um, one, one exercise from psychological research that, that has been shown to be incredibly impactful is what's called self-affirmation. And self-affirmation is not the same as telling yourself that you're great and powerful and, and you're gonna do really well. Because when we try to tell ourselves that, when we're not, feeling that way, now we just feel like we're lying to ourselves. So that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like self-talk. Self-affirmation in psychology is when you sort of write a list of the values that matter most to you or the things that matter most to you, that these are the things that make you who you are you then rank them and choose the first, maybe the top one or, or two. You write about a time when you were able to really express those values, you know, to act on them and you write about why they matter to you. And th there's no judgment in what that value is. It, it has to be the thing that makes you, you. It's the thing that if someone took it away, you would no longer feel like yourself. When people do that simple task of, you know, figuring out what is it that makes them who they are and then writing about it, reflecting on it, that is self-affirmation. You are basically anchoring yourself in who you are. And so what happens in these studies is that they, they look at what happens when people do that, how does it affect their performance in unrelated domains? Like say you do self-affirmation and, you know, maybe I would write about how much I love music and how much that means to me. And then I go in and take a calculus exam. It turns out I would do better on that calculus exam and be less anxious while I'm taking it. That's because you've anchored yourself in who you are, right? So that is a way of getting in touch with your personal power. Your personal power is very, very closely linked to your, your, your best authentic self. Yeah, I, lo I love that, Amy. And, and partly um, what comes to mind when you're talking about that is something that I think is a lost art now, which is the, the art of self-reflection. I mean, I think before we were able to carry these little tiny computers in our hands, I mean, I, I mean, you and I remember the days when you'd stand in an elevator awkwardly because you had nothing to look at or do. And, and you know, those times when, when you're going somewhere, you're, you're waiting in line, when we didn't have a phone to distract us, I feel like we did a lot more self-reflection than, than we're doing now, which we do a lot more distraction. So I'm curious if you think that kind of has had an impact and um, you know, how this would play into all of that. That's interesting. I, 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 I certainly think that not having um, downtime or time to be bored um, is, is, is a sort of a net bad thing. Um, and I, you know, in, in some ways, I think that in the last few months, while many of us are home and having a little bit more time to reflect, I mean, that will be one of the, one of the things that, you know, in the end comes out as a, as a benefit. Um, but no, I, I think that we don't, we don't spend a lot of time looking back in a positive way. We, we, we spend time looking back in a negative way, wishing that we could have a do-over, but we don't spend a lot of time reflecting sort of in a, in a positive way that helps us to really understand ourselves. Um, and, you know, that matters because it's, it's about understanding our story, uh, understanding sort of our narrative. How, how did we get to be, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it, it's about understanding our story and our personal narrative and how we got to be who we are. Um, because, you know, if we don't really own 
and believe our story and understand our story, no one else will believe it, right? It's like, if you can't sell something that you yourself wouldn't buy, um, you know, when, when somebody's trying to sell something that they, they wouldn't buy, you don't want to buy it. Think about like when you're in a restaurant and the server tells you about the daily special and you say, is it good? And they, they answer yes, but you can kind of tell by their facial expression that they don't think it's good. You're not going to buy the daily special. The reason you're asking is not because they're going to give you a straight answer. You're looking to read their body language, you know, and their tone to figure out if they would buy it themselves. So you know, this may seem like it's, it's not the same as the self, but it is. You know, in a way, when we're going into a job interview, you are in a way presenting yourself as something that you want people to invest in. And if you don't understand your story and understand yourself and believe in yourself, other people cannot believe in you. They cannot want to invest in you. Yeah, I, I think that is that is great advice. And I want to tap into something that just pull out of that that is so important about just being able to tap into and self-reflect something about your, your true self before you go into a test or an interview or speaking. And the fact that that alone, tapping into kind of your true self and who you really know yourself to be, can help you to be better at that task. And hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Dr. Dawn Graham. Hey, if you want to stay up to date on the latest career and job search news, tips, and advice, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Don Graham. Today, we are so fortunate to be speaking with Dr. Amy Cuddy, social psychologist, TED speaker, award-winning Harvard lecturer, and author of the best-selling book, Presence. And we're talking all about um, how to be, how to have more presence and to show up and feel more confident and how body language is such a big part of that. So, so Amy, I'm curious, one of the things that always cracked me up in your TED talk was when you showed the, the handshake video, like handshakes are, are kind of gone. We're not going to have that, that first impression with a handshake in an interview. So has something replaced that in the, in the video interview? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I feel like we're still working this out. Like we're in, the, we're in the, you know, the, the like very primitive stages of figuring out how to interact by, um, by video. Um, I mean, you see, like, I think that we see behavior now in, in like Zoom calls that we're not going to see a year from now. Like, you know, people might be in a Zoom call with a dozen other people and they're fidgeting and they're looking at their phone and they're doing all kinds yeah. of things and it's so distracting. Um, they think that like if, if they're not the ones being observed directly or speaking, that no one's noticing what's happening. So I think we're still working that out. I would say it is, you know, before you turn on your camera and your microphone, make sure you're ready, you know, and, and be, be present. You are interacting with a real person in real time, right? Be looking, at, you know, be looking at them. Don't be, you know, don't be distracted feeling like the physical distance somehow um, means you should be less present. Yeah, I, and I agree. And I think, I think body language, which, you know, a lot of people say, oh, now that we're all moving uh, away from in person is, you know, body language is becoming less important. I, I would disagree with that because I think you're right on a Zoom uh, video, you now are in a little box and where you may get away with fidgeting when you're outdoors in a larger environment. I think, I think a lot of that, that body language is actually almost overexposed in a video. So I, I agree. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a study that came out recently showing that people are overwhelmed by zoom psychologically, um, because they're looking at too much body language. Right, so it's it's not that they're bored; it's actually that they're cognitively taxed, sort of taxed by seeing so much body language. So they're trying to interpret too much all at once. Yeah, and it's, I'm so glad you said that. Um, you know, when you're in a little Zoom box and you think no one's paying attention, that they are, because I'm gonna have to think about that now going into my next meeting. <laughs> Don't mean to make you nervous, but I do think it's sort of like, you know, it's funny as a as a you know, a person who teach college, teaches college courses and has done so for a long time. It's funny how much students feel that they're not being noticed when they're doing something else, like when they're not paying attention and they're on their phones, or I can tell that they're on their laptops doing something different. 
the funny thing is the professor actually notices the person who's distracted. You do notice that you're not invisible, right? So even in a classroom with 100 people, you're not invisible. So certainly the same applies to online video, um, you know, sort of team meetings. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And you think, well, there's 12 people on the screen. Who's really looking at me? But yeah, on the screen. So good call out, good call out. I'm gonna remember that for my, for my meetings. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Dr. Dawn Graham. We are very fortunate to be speaking with Dr. Amy Cuddy today. who's a social psychologist, TED speaker, award-winning Harvard lecturer and author of the best-selling book, Presence. So one of the things that, um, you know, as, as a licensed psychologist, one of my favorite tips that you share is, is how to kind of reframe anxiety as excitement. And I think this is, again, one of those, those tidbits that, that can be very simple, but can have a huge impact when you're going to be doing something that you feel anxious about. So you can, can you share with people kind of what is the science behind this and, and you know, why it works and how they can yeah. do it? Sure. Yeah, I, lo I love me. These are some of my favorite studies. So they were done by um, a, a professor at Harvard Business School named Allison Woodbrooks. And she actually was a professional singer before she went to grad school. And, and she became really interested in stage fright and what kind of gets people hung up before they go to perform. And so she, she tested this hypothesis. And her hypothesis was that before you go on stage uh, and you're you know, feeling really nervous, people tell you to calm down or you tell yourself to calm down. And that actually seems to backfire and make people more anxious. So she thought, what if instead of trying to calm down, you, you noticed your anxiety, but thought of it, instead of thinking of it as anxiety, you thought of it as excitement. Now, let me say why psychologically this this makes sense when how you would come theoretically to that hypothesis. Emotions basically have two dimensions. One of them is whether they're you know positive or negative, right? Happy, sad is is one that, that's sort of one continuum. Another is the arousal level, and that's sort of how aroused is your nervous system. So you can have like high arousal emotions both anxiety and excitement are high arousal emotions. Um, a low arousal emotion would be, would be something like sadness, right? So your nervous system is not, uh, not highly um, activated. So it's very hard to change arousal level and calm is a low arousal emotion. So when you're anxious in a high arousal state and someone says, calm down, you just become more aroused because you become you become aware of that nervous yeah. activation. So it's very hard to do that. And the whole keep calm meme in a way, you know, like really, really didn't work. So, but you can change the sort of negativity slash positivity of the emotion or that what we call valence. So you can't make yourself calm, but you can say, hey, maybe that arousal level isn't anxiety. Maybe I'm feeling excited about this thing that I'm about to go in to do. So she did a bunch of studies in different contexts like singing, uh, um, uh, math exams, um, debate contests, where she had people reframe their anxiety as excitement um, or as other emotions or, or not at all. And she found that the people who were able to tell themselves, I'm excited, not anxious, performed much better than the people who didn't do that. So we call that reframing anxiety as excitement. So before you go into this situation, it's back, sort of back to the idea that I was saying before, a challenge can be interpreted as a threat or an opportunity, right? So before you go into this, this situation and you might be feeling that sort of stage fright or stage anxiety, say to yourself, you know what, I'm excited by this opportunity in front of me. I'm excited to see what I can do here. I love that. I, I Again, that's one I've used a number of times and I just keep telling myself, just be curious, be curious. But I do think, I think we put a lot of expectations, which also kind of 
jacks up the anxiety when we're going into an interview. Like, this is the job. This is the one I need to, to get versus just saying, hey, I'm going to find out. I'm going to learn more about it. <laughs> See how it goes. Exactly. I'm excited about that. Exactly. Exactly. You're just tuning in. You're listening to Dr. Dawn on Career, Sirius XM, Channel 132. We are very fortunate to be here with Dr. Amy Cuddy, who is the author of the best-selling book, New York Times bestseller, Presence. And we need to take a quick break, but stay tuned because we are going to be coming back with more fantastic advice from Dr. Amy Cuddy. You're listening to Sirius XM Channel 132. Andy Cohen Live is fun. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Do you like it? Do you like it like this? A party. I'm really excited. I'm so happy you are. Revelatory. What? I've never heard of that. Uncensored. I'm not being a downer. I'm being funny. Insane. Wow, man. What a trip it was. Jaw dropping. What's going on? <laughs> Join me on Andy Cohen Live. You never know what you're going to hear. Radio Andy. Sirius XM 102. Or listen anytime on the Sirius XM app. Volume Sirius XM 106 is your 24-7 talk channel about music. Featuring the most respected and knowledgeable people in the music business, Bill Flanagan. Robert Plant. There's got to be enough variety amongst the people that I play with so that I'm amazed sometimes. John Resnick. Rob Thomas. There's certain moments like to me to step outside of myself and be a part of a pop world. And Steve Jordan. John Mayer. I had to learn how to be loved. And the crowd gave that to us. This is Volume Sirius XM 106. Your liner notes to the world of music. You're listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers. On Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Dr. Dawn on Careers on Sirius XM 132. In case you haven't heard, we are back with all new episodes in June every Thursday. So mark your calendar for noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific each week and tune in to hear the latest career advice, job search tips, and market updates. And if you're looking for even more expert insights, check out my website, drdawnoncareers.com, where I have compiled all of my best advice from my Forbes.com articles, Wharton video shorts, LinkedIn learning courses, TEDx talk, and you can also sign up for my monthly newsletter so that you stay current on the latest career management ideas. Hey, do you have an idea for the show or maybe a question you would like answered or perhaps you just want to stay current on what's happening? You can follow me at Dr. Don Graham on Twitter. And if you like this show, why not check out some of the other great shows on the channel like Women at Work with Laura Zaro, Your Money with Professor Kent Smetters, Marketing Matters with Professor Americus Reed, and of course, Wharton Business Daily every weekday at 10 a.m. Eastern with host Dan Loney. You can learn more by following at SXM Business on Twitter. So let's go ahead and get back to Dr. Amy Cuddy. We're very excited that Dr. Cuddy is here today. She is a social psychologist, best-selling author, award-winning Harvard lecturer, and expert on the behavioral science of power, presence, and prejudice. Dr. Cuddy's first book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges, is a New York Times bestseller and has been published in 35 languages. And she is currently writing two new books, the first one on public speaking and another titled Bullies, Bystanders, and Brave Hearts, which delves into the psychological causes and consequences of bullying among adults. Both are anticipated for release in 2021, so be on the lookout. But before we dive back in, we have time for a quick mailbag, so let's do that. Dear Dr. Don, I listen to your show often, and it's been helpful during my new job search. While things were quiet for a few months, I'm starting to get scheduled for a few interviews and was wondering if anything has changed that would be helpful to know. I see a lot in prepping for video interviews, which I've been doing, but is there anything else I should consider? Thank you for all of your helpful information, Greg in Pennsylvania. So Greg, thank you so much for submitting the question. And yeah, this is really important for anybody who's interviewing right now, because I want to cover three things that have changed um, in our current market. The first one you've already touched on, 
which is that you need to set up the environment. So before, when, when you would go into the office to interview and that was commonplace, you didn't have to worry about the environment because you'd be in an office or in a, in a conference room. But now you're responsible for 50% of that setup, which means that you want to be as flawless as possible in terms of setting up the background, making sure that the audio works well, making sure that the lighting is ideal. And, you know, I recognize that people have all different constraints while they're at home. But remember that this is your first impression and that in your new job, you most likely will be communicating with customers, vendors, and other people via, via video. So it's really important that the company has confidence that you know how to use these tools. So it's, it's critical that you practice on the different tools you're using. Make sure you understand kind of where the mute button is or where the camera is so you're looking at it. And I think that people understand that video is now part of the interview process, but I don't think they realize necessarily how important it is because it's an audition of sorts since you'll likely be using this technology on the job. So yeah, so you've got that one covered, but I wanted to reiterate because it is pretty important. The second one is that you'll probably be asked a question on how have you been handling the pandemic? And you should definitely ask them as well because I think this digs a little bit into culture, which we'll get to in just a second. And the fact is, this is a great opportunity for you to show how you've been adaptable, how you've you've maybe used new skills or have been creative or um, how you showed your leadership qualities. So I think that the pandemic and the situation it's caused has led to a lot of opportunities for us all to show new skills. So First, consider your audience. What are their pain points? What's going to be most valuable to them? And then shape your answer in a way that shows the skills you've used that will be helpful in the new job. And in my opinion, adaptability is the, the new job skill of the future. So any way that you can show how you can adapt to changes quickly and come up with creative ideas to solve problems are going to be a real big win in a job interview. So if you were furloughed, um, maybe you want to talk about the skills you developed or any relevant online courses you completed. Maybe you um, volunteered during that time. So really think about how you use that time and what would be of most interest to the employer. But do be ready for that question because I've heard it's coming up. The last one I want to talk to you, talk about goes back to culture. So if you're interviewing via teleconference, it's going to be difficult to really assess the culture and the workspace because you don't really have that in-person feel for, you know, things like the building decor or how employees are interacting with one another, how the workspace is set up and kind of just that overall office vibe. So it's incumbent on you to do a little bit more digging during the interview to really get a sense of that because I think... A lot of people overlook how important culture is to your success on the job. If, if it's a good fit for you and how you approach your work and you know how you work with others, you're going to, to automatically feel um, like you can be more successful in that type of environment. The company is assessing you for that fit as well. So I think it's really important to dig in and maybe ask a little bit more in terms of follow-up questions. So, you know, who are the heroes in your company? Or can I speak to some other people who do this type of, of work in your company and just get a sense of kind of what, what, you know, they deal with every day and what they like about it and what surprises them about it. So yeah, so I think as a third thing, you're going to want to spend more time, Greg, digging into that culture. So those are my responses to you. I wish you all the best in your interviews. And if you're just tuning in, you are listening to SiriusXM channel 132. We are here with Dr. Amy Cuddy talking about her book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. So one of the things I know you talk about a lot, Amy, and um, again, we talk about it a lot on Dr. Dawn on Careers as well, is this idea of imposter syndrome. So my question for you, maybe for some of the listeners who haven't really heard of this 
before. Um, you know, what is this? Does it impact different groups disproportionately? And most importantly, how can we get beyond this? That's a great question. Imposter syndrome is known as the experience of feeling like a fraud, um, either in a job or maybe as a student at a school, and believing that you're going to be found out and kicked out, right? So you feel like you don't deserve to be there, but everyone else does. That's what was originally known as imposter syndrome. The woman who first started studying it, Pauline Clance, now says she wishes she had called it the imposter experience because a syndrome is something that's uncommon. It's a path out. It's a, a syndrome is something that's uncommon. It's a pathology. And she said, imposter syndrome is so common, nearly everyone experiences it, that she now wishes she had called it the imposter experience. It does not disproportionately affect any group, despite the cultural myth that it does. Women and men experience it equally. Women were just more likely to openly report it and talk about it. Men felt that it wasn't okay for them to admit to it, which is a, a burden. You know, so men were not sharing it and, and not talking to each other about it. It's also equally common across you know, different demographic groups, uh, different professions. About 85% of people uh, experience the imposter experience at some point. I think we should just call it the human experience. <laughs> the human experience, right. But, but so the question about, uh, about sort of, um, you know, what, what do we do about it? I mean, I think the first thing is to know, uh, is to not panic if you feel that way. But know that almost everyone feels this way at some point and that we feel it more often in new situations or after being acknowledged or awarded for something, right? So when we achieve something, we're more likely to feel impo that imposter experience because we worry that, well, what if we didn't deserve that thing that we just won? We worry mm -hmm. that more people are looking at us now, more eyes are on us. And so to, to know that when you start something new that's challenging, or, or maybe when you are uh, you know, rewarded for having done something well, you might feel that and it will go away. So it's, you know, uh, um, you know a, a, I have a friend, Neil Gaiman, who's a you know, famous novelist. And he says, every time he starts a new project, he feels it again, despite the fact that he has dozens of best-selling books, right? And he's a phenomenally excess, successful award-winning author. Uh, it's, you know, as I say, it's a game of whack-a-mole that all of us can win, right? It's going to keep popping up, but when it pops up, don't panic. Know that if you just sort of allow yourself a bit of time, it's going to go away. And I think it actually relates back to some of the advice you had given um, earlier in the show, which is, you know, that idea of reminding yourself kind of what you're good at and what your true value is. Because I find a lot of people, especially when it comes to careers, uh, the imposter syndrome comes up when they get a new title and they're so enmeshed with their, their current title that they, they find it really difficult to see themselves in a new way. So we, we kind of coach our, our executive MBAs to break down your skills and see yourself as the value you bring, not so much attached to a title because when you see yourself as the values you bring, that is constant, that you carry with no matter what position or title you're given. And I feel like that, that kind of is similar to the advice you were given before is when you know who you really truly are and can tap into that, that can be very powerful for reconnecting with your, your um, you know, personal presence and personal power and, and getting through a situation. So I, I totally agree with that. Right. That, and again, you're, you are, I say, anchoring yourself in yourself, right? So you're anchoring yourself in who you really are with the knowledge that whether or not a situation goes well, you will still be that person at the end of it. Mm -hmm. So, so we, you know, there's a lot of debate on the fake it till you make it, but what I love about your Ted talk is that you've, you've kind of modified this, this uh, common phrase a little bit in two ways that I think would, would be more digestible for people who don't, who don't really resonate with the first one. Can you share that? Yeah. So it's funny. So the fake it till you make it idea to me, I mean, I, I did not resonate with that. I mean, cause the idea of faking it till you make it, it feels like, you know, pretending to be something that you're not, and then you get there and you still have to keep on pretending that you are that thing that you're not. Faking it till you become it 
so it, in, I guess faking it till you make it is about sort of tricking other people into believing that you're something you're not. Faking it until you become it is about sort of tricking yourself into allowing yourself to be the best version of yourself, right? So becoming the person that you know you can be. But sometimes we have to sort of fake our way into feeling more powerful so that we can express and get in touch with that best version of ourselves. So fake it till you become it is what I say. And so by the time you get to where you want to be, uh, if, if, if it's a job, you know, you are the person that you want to be. You're not having to fool anyone. Yeah, I love that too, because I, I feel like a lot of times when I'm coaching students on, on finding a new job or, or getting a new job and they're thinking about negotiating, one of the tips I give them is negotiate the job as if you've been doing it for six months, not as if you're on day one. Because the fact is right now, of course, it seems like you have a big learning curve because you do. But think about six months from now, wouldn't you have wanted to negotiate based on what you'll know at the six month point? And I think it's very similar to what you're saying, fake it till you become it. Because if, if we reflect and we're going back to this reflection, we know that there's so many situations where we might have experienced imposter syndrome. And now we think, ah, that's no problem. And so I think, again, it goes back to this reflecting on the fact that you've done this and it's worked and, and to just call that up and do it again. That's right. And, you know, I, I often say that presence, you know, is, is about um, approaching these big challenges without fear, um, enacting them without anxiety and leaving them without regret. And I think that that, you know, sort of looking backwards piece comes up again there that, the, you know, when you go into something like a job interview, you want to be able to leave feeling seen. Regardless of the outcome, you don't want to leave feeling like, oh, if only I had shown them who I really am. And so many of us have been in that position where we want a do over because we feel like, oh, I forgot to say this or that about myself. I really didn't show them who I am. They didn't see me. And so we leave with regret and we take that regret and pick it up it's a piece of sort of a piece of baggage that we carry into the next similar situation so the next time we go and do an interview we're carrying this piece of baggage you know, feeling like oh i didn't do that well last time you know i want people to leave those situations feeling a sense of satisfaction that they did everything they could do to show them who they are as opposed to yeah feeling that sense of regret that sense of satisfaction is what allows you to do better next time. Even if you don't get the outcome that you desired, even if you don't get the job, you need to be able to live with how you performed in the job interview. That matters so much. Yeah, that is so well said. And I love that image of, you know, don't bring your baggage into the interview. They're already hard enough. So, right. hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Series XM 132. And has the current economic climate inspired you to make a career change? While you may be ready, the hiring process isn't. It still caters to job seekers on a traditional career trajectory. Don't worry, I have you covered in my book, Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and See Success offers a clear roadmap to help you get in front of the decision makers, understand what's going inside, going on inside the hiring manager's mind, and give you a competitive advantage by rebranding your experience to show you the value you bring to your new industry or function. So if you wanna prepare for those tough interviews and negotiate the compensation you deserve but aren't sure how, check out my book, Switchers. It's available on hardback, Kindle, and Audible. And it's the perfect gift for someone who's diving into a job search. You're just tuning in. You are listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers, Sirius XM 132. We are super excited to have Dr. Amy Cuddy here talking all about her book, Presence as well as how body language impacts you in the job interview, how to get past anxiety. So many great tips on this show. And um, Amy, I have to get into something that I do cover a lot in my book that is from your research, which is this idea of warmth and competence. And these, these two things, which I believe are so crucial to building a good network and getting hired. So um, there's so many things we can cover on this, but but let's just start out with kind of the, people are taught to give an elevator pitch, which really leads off with what you're good at. 
But what you're, what you found is that it's pretty much the opposite that people need to be doing if they want to be successful. So I'm going to let you take the stage here because this sure. is such good stuff that I want. I love talking about this. So, and, and actually the book that I'm working on now on public speaking is grounded in, in this, this very um, uh, idea that I'm going to share now. First, decades of research, and I've been studying warmth and confidence for a very long time, um, shows that the two fundamental traits that we're judging each other on are warmth, like can, can I trust this person, and confidence, um, uh, can this person enact whatever their intentions are toward me. So if you, if you meet a stranger, you want to know two things. What are their intentions toward me? And that's what we call warmth. Um, and can they enact those intentions? And that's what we call competence. Now, the thing is, while we want others to be warm, we want them to see us as competent. And that's a bit of a mistake. First of all, we need to be seen as both, but we prioritize competence over warmth when we are presenting ourselves in professional settings in particular. So in job interviews, in elevator pitches, in any kind of pitch, um, when we're giving talks. We, we want to show them first what our credentials are. We want to show them, you know, that we have chops, that you know, here's what our experiences are and our expertise. We have knowledge. The problem is that when you try to do that before establishing that you are trustworthy, that they can trust you, they can't hear you. They can't hear what you're saying about your expertise. They don't care about that. They don't want to hire someone who they don't yet know if they can trust. So the, the key is that, and yeah, I talk to my MBA students about this all the time, right? They go into their summer internships and they will spend the first six weeks trying to show that they're the smartest guy in the room, right? And, and, and try to do things on their own. They never want to ask for help. They don't, you know, they don't socialize with anyone. And they do that at the expense of connecting with people and forming trusting relationships. And so then they don't end up getting hired back because nobody yet knows if they can trust them. Yeah, so the idea is trust before competence or you know, warmth before competence. Uh, you need to establish that first because trust is the conduit of influence, right? The, all of your knowledge has to travel through some medium and that medium is trust. And I love the example you, you, you give, if you consider that in the caveman days, it was more important to figure out if your, your fellow man was going to kill you and steal all your possessions and if he was confident enough to build a good fire. That is like such a... Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, that, and, and of course, yeah, you, what you do, you want to know, like, what are, the, what are their intentions toward me? Do they intend, I mean, is, is this friend or foe? And if we have no information about that, and people just come in kind of swinging, like wanting to show us how strong and confident they are, then that strength and confidence isn't seen as you know, a gift that's gonna be shared with us, it's seen as potentially a threat. Right? So yeah. trust has to come first. And that often means you know, that we need to shut up and listen before we even start talking. And I think this translates into, um, you know, this idea of, of likability and there's so much out there on, on, you know, multiple studies showing that this idea of likability or warmth or, you know, trust is equally, if not more important than competence when managers are making hiring decisions. It's also really been demonstrated to help you be successful in the job because people who are perceived as likable get more assistance at work, they obtain more pay raises, they, they get more information, which can be super helpful. And this one always gets me, their mistakes tend to be more easily forgiven, which I think is so true. I mean, think about it. That person that you love, if they show up late to a meeting, you're like, oh, that's okay. But then there's that person who's kind of a grouch and you're like, see, see, they're late again <laughs> yeah for sure and I think I mean the other thing is that like I I prefer I prefer the term warmth um, because I feel like warmth is about you know, sort of you know being warm-hearted it's about your intention toward others and that's really what it's about like you know more than being the most charismatic fun person I mean you want to make sure that people know when you come into an interaction they feel a sense of relief because they know, oh, I, I know I can trust Amy. You know, I, I like her because I know I can trust her. I feel better 
when she's around because I know I can trust her. And, mm -hmm. and so that's you know, really what it is about. And it makes sense that that characteristic is more valuable um, both in personal and professional settings. But we, we just, we forget that in professional settings, it matters so, so much. So I love this topic and I'm so excited that one of your next two books that's coming out next year is focused on, on public speaking and how all of this plays into it. And um, while, we're, while we're kind of uh, winding down here, can you give us a little sneak preview into your other new book, Bullies, Bystanders, and Bravehearts? So Bullies, Bystanders, and Bravehearts is about adult bullying. Uh, and you know, adult bullying is a problem. It's not only kids who bully. And it looks at the, the pattern of, of how it happens, whether it's in the workplace or in politics. Um, and it doesn't just involve one person being a jerk. Adult bullying or mobbing is when one person or two people are able to get a mob of people to kind of shut down and silence somebody else. So much so that that person either is sort of forced to leave or can no longer tolerate being there. Uh, and what, I, what I'm curious about and what this book will look into is not so much those initial couple of bullies, but all of the bystanders who see this happening, who know it's wrong and who do nothing to step in and go, this is not a dignified way of behaving, like something wrong is happening here. So it is ultimately a guide for us to become braver and uh, know how to recognize bullying how to step in, how to be helpful, and you know how to really turn things around because the costs of, of adult bullying are enormous, um, both to the individual who's been bullied, but also to the organizations and the bottom line. Well, I think that's a book that we are all eagerly anticipating, Amy, and um, both books, the one on public speaking for sure as well. And hey, if you're just tuning in, we've been talking with Dr. Amy Cuddy. And if you've not yet had the chance to read her first book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. It is a New York Times bestseller and has been published in 35 languages. So be sure to check that out as well as Amy's very popular TED Talk. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today on Dr. Donna on Careers. Where can people learn more about you and your upcoming books? Thank you. Um, uh, well, amycuddy.com. Uh, but, but I'm very active on Twitter, and on Twitter, I think if you type in Amy Cuddy, you'll find me, but it is Amy J.C. Cuddy. Uh, also, super active on LinkedIn, uh, so you will find me there if you look for me, and on, on Instagram. So um, I'm all over social media, and I do, I do stay active and, and engage, uh, and you will be, I think, up to date on, on what I'm working on and thinking about. Fantastic. Well, we definitely recommend that you follow her as it's, it would be very difficult not to find you. And of course, if you reach out to Dr. Amy Cuddy on LinkedIn, be sure to send a personalized message so that she knows where you got her information. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you as always to Dana and Dion for making the show sound awesome. You've been listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers on Sirius XM 132. And if you want to stay current with our upcoming shows, get insightful tips on your job search and find out what you need to be doing to manage your career, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Dawn Graham. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.